0: Hi everyone, I'm Mike. And I'm Steven. And welcome to Re-Oscared. This is where we pick an Academy Awards year, look at what they got right, where they went horribly wrong, give you some history, perspective, and most importantly, some useless facts along the way. This uh, episode, we're looking at 1991 Academy Awards, which means we're looking at the movies from 1990. My opinion is that the Oscar year was very strong in terms of the films nominated for Oscars, but the year itself, is pretty weird and uneven. What do you think, Stephen?
1: Yeah, I I think it's uh, quite a strange year overall. Um, Something I noticed when I started looking into the Oscars is that it's really going to be a year where I have to separate my feelings from what was good and bad. I figured, oh, this is going to be Goodfellas across the board for me because I love Goodfellas. But as I started watching some of the other films, I was like, oh, wait a minute there's a lot of quality here and it's a, I think it's a really good year just overall. I mean, there are two definitive movies, like you said, but uh some of the subcategories and and some of the ancillary things really had a lot of competition. And even beyond that, like the non Oscar films are uh, what a year. <laughs> it's- yeah, I mean, that's, what's interesting about it. Yeah.
0: There were a lot of strong Movies and it's definitely that ended up being nominated for Oscars and some other strong movies, but there was also some like genuine trash movies. I mean, when the fourth highest grossing movie of the year is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, we got a little bit to talk about. I mean, that's just a strange, strange year. So, (laughs) I think, and the (laughs) fact I'm still just reeling from the fact that Problem Child with uh John Ritter. And three men, a little lady, both made more money than Goodfellas at the box office, which is just something I have a really hard time wrapping my head around. But that, that is a strange
1: year. And something I noticed as I was looking at things that weren't nominated for Oscars is, and I don't know if this is the first year to do this, I'm sure it's not, but the amount of sequels is overwhelming. Just to run down a couple: Die Hard, Two; Back to the Future, Three; Robocop, Two; Gremlins, Two; Rocky, Five; Young Guns, Two; The Exorcist, Three; Predator, Two, and the list goes on and on. It, it's really kind of a telltale sign that we're moving into beating a dead horse and uh, losing the originality in Hollywood. Yeah, we,
0: we we sure are. I mean, a couple of interesting things that I that I think about when I'm looking at it is definitely the sequels. Don't forget another 48 hours, which I don't know if you mentioned, which-
1: Oh, I left out a bunch because- the, now, That's one that, is that you lot. probably
0: should forget about, along with Rocky <laughs> Five, which I pretended for at least a decade never actually happened, but I'm willing to accept it now. But there was a long time <laughs> where I refused to accept that movie existed. But, but the other interesting theme is after Batman came out in 89, then you've got a little bit of a percolating of those kinds of movies. So you have Dick Tracy, which obviously is coming off on the heels of Batman, which was right. trying to be Batman for 1990. And then you also have Darkman, That's which is right. like Raimi's superhero movie, which starred Liam Neeson, which is kind of wild. And uh, I remember seeing that in the movie theater. It was not exactly Batman, but it was weird and interesting. So, uh, so you have some things going on with some superhero movies. I also believe that there is a Captain America movie that actually came out. That's right. As well, like A really low budget Captain America movie.
1: I think you're right.
0: Yeah. So there's a little bit of that. Uh, One of my other favorite thoughts is that it's kind of like the year of peak Steven Seagal. Because he had two movies that came out this year. He had Hard to Kill and Mark for Death, which both came out in
1: 1990. So, you know, you're you're kind of in a peak Seagal moment. And it's also not peak, but sort of on the way down Schwarzenegger. Because you have Kindergarten Cop and Total Recall. Predator 2, of course, comes out. Uh, yeah, which I one, don't even remember if he's in or not.
0: I don't remember, actually. No, he's not in Predator. He's not in Predator. Uh,
1: yeah. Predator he's, two? He's not yeah. Predator 2. Not okay.
0: But the interesting, interesting thing that I noticed as well is there's a lot of multiple movies. Like, in other words, there's a lot of actors that were in multiple movies as well. Yeah. And as I was looking at that, I'm realizing how many people were in more than one movie. I mean, Kevin Costner was obviously in Dance with Wolves, but he was also in Revenge. Gene Hackman made a couple of movies. Obviously, Steven Seagal made a couple of movies. Tom Cruise born on the 4th of July, depending on where you slot that one. And Days of Thunderbolt came out. So, so I think that's interesting as well. A lot of people were, were doing a lot of work. <laughs> that's what it seems like to me. So,
1: Yeah, for sure. And uh, one of the people that I noticed as I kind of breezed through these films was John Hurd, who was the dad in Home Alone. Uh, he's also in Awakenings, right? which was... Uh, You know, I think it was kind of more common back then to uh, bank a bunch of films and then release them same year. I don't know. I mean, Joe Pesci being in both Home Alone and Goodfellas. That's right. It's funny because I was watching
0: Goodfellas and my son walked in. Uh, Don't worry, I I wasn't actually, uh, I didn't have the sound on. (laughs) But he looked at me and was like, oh, he's like, the guy from Home Alone is in Goodfellas? And And I got a little bit sad realizing that, yes, that my children only know Joe Pesci from Home Alone.
1: Yeah. Could he have had two Best Supporting Actor nominations that year? I think that is totally valid. Uh, Interestingly enough,
0: with Pesci, I was watching an interview that he did right after he won the Oscar in the back room, and someone asked him what his thoughts were about being in the two most violent movies of 1990, which I think is pretty hysterical. He was shocked by that. He's like, you think Home Alone was violent? I'm like, of course it was violent. Last Hour is one of the most violent things in, in the movies that year. Yeah, he he did not see it that way, but that is pretty funny.
1: That's that's really the two ends of the spectrum on violence. That, that's mm-hmm. comedy, Die Hard, and and just mobster brutality. That's fantastic.
0: That's, that's it turns out, I, I just have to mention the two things that that jumped out at me that I thought were crazy. Uh, two movies that were made that, in hindsight, make absolutely no sense. Uh, <laughs> one is a movie called Heart Condition, which I recommend no one go see. This was a movie where Bob Hoskins plays a racist cop yeah. who is haunted by a black lawyer yeah. who also died whose heart he gets as a heart yeah. transplant, and tries to make him less racist while also trying to solve his murder. And if that sounds interesting to you, I don't really know what to say, but it's not. And it just goes to show that in 1990, no one had any idea what to do with Denzel Washington. And that's a bit <laughs> of a tragedy.
1: That's, uh, I mean, there are no body parts exchange, but that's uh, in a way, and without the racism, the premise of Ghost. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? Which we'll talk about later. Yes, we will. And, And the other one was a movie called Loose Cannons,
0: which starred Gene Hackman and Dan Aykroyd. Yes. Which is just baffling to me. It's just like, what in the hell is Gene Hackman doing in this movie? Yeah, there he is.
1: Yeah, I think that's coming off of the '80s trend of of buddy cop movies that are just ridiculous with big names in them.
0: Yeah,
1: or we'll call 1990
0: the year of the paycheck. I guess
1: maybe that's. Maybe- yeah, it's uh, and Gene Hackman is living off that Loose Cannons money in Santa Fe right now. I saw uh, <laughs> pictures of him getting gas in his truck not too long ago. Yes, it is. Uh, at the age of 98 or something like that. So Oscars. Maybe we should just jump into the Oscars here. Pretty good year, I think, as far as picks. Yeah, I think they got a lot right in terms of the nominations. A few things here
0: and there. But yeah, these are all quality movies. I mean, having rewatched basically all of them, I find that most of them were pretty high quality movies. Or high quality even just in terms of watchability. And and they were all pretty good.
1: Yeah, I I was really surprised. uh, When you picked this year, I thought, Boy, I don't know. I don't know what's uh what the appeal is here with this year. Maybe it's just a reason to rewatch Goodfellas. But as I uh dug in, I was pleasantly surprised. that There's some really quality stuff and and in places I didn't expect it. So yeah, I don't um, want to lie to you though, it, it certainly
0: was. This this is uh I think this is the year for me that started my minor obsession with the Academy Awards because I felt like how things went down. I think it's a, it's a, an interesting year because it's, it's very much a binary year where there's kind of two big movies, in my opinion. It kind of breaks down either way. And I think people have strong feelings one way or the other about the two movies, of course, meaning *Dances with Wolves and Goodfellas. And I've always had strong feelings about it. So I've always thought it's, a, it's kind of a fascinating year, which we'll get into a little bit later, kind of uh, how, how I feel about it.
1: I'll say another, uh, another good thing about this year. I went back and did a little research. Is uh, honorary Oscar to Myrna Loy, who is just one of my favorite actresses from, uh, of course, the Thin Man movies with William Powell and and so many good things. It was great. I don't know that she had won an Oscar prior to that, so it was great to see her win, even though it was a really awkward presentation at her home. That <laughs> really- makes it even better. But yeah, I really recommend people go onto the Oscars website and watch that because it's very strange. <laughs> and also recommend
0: it. Everyone should go back and watch those Thin Man movies because they are truly great. If you enjoy witty banter and rapid fire dialogue and it's like those movies are just perfect. Oh, yeah.
1: I didn't realize they made a TV show of that uh, until recently. So I might uh, I I think it was short lived, but I think I might try to track it down. (laughs) Oh, I wasn't worried. I'll check that out, too. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Unless there's anything else uh, pre-Oscar, let's, let's take a look at the categories. Let's jump in. Where do you want to start? Let's start with Best Supporting Actor. Went to Joe Pesci for Goodfellas, of course. Which um, you can agree with, as I told you,
0: my criteria for Best Supporting Actor is when they are on the screen, do they pull all the focus from everything else so yeah. you're focusing on them? Yeah. And there's no doubt that Joe Pesci does that.
1: I agree. And, uh, you know, Some of the other nominees, Andy Garcia, I I think by default, the Godfather 3 should just be avoided altogether, maybe not even considered. But I think uh, it's fascinating
0: that Godfather 3 came out the same year as Goodfellas because in a way, it's almost a passing of the torch where the Godfather just kind of officially dies and you move on from it and Goodfellas becomes the new template for what the gangster movie is. Yeah. Which is one of the many reasons that I think it's great but it's just kind of a a very interesting note that those come out at the same time. And and you see The Godfather, that whole idea of that kind of mobster movie is just kind of over and Goodfellas takes over, which does remind me, and this is off topic, but I have to mention it, that one other gangster movie came out in 1990, which I think is pretty important, which was The King of New York.
1: Mm -hmm. Abel Ferraro.
0: Exactly, even for a great performance by by Christopher Walken. Yeah. But to me, that's the movie that launched a thousand hip hop songs. I mean, kim yeah. New York is like the seminal movie for '90s hip hop. So right. I just think it's it's uh, it's a big deal for that. So I feel like it has to be mentioned.
1: Sure. Yeah. I, not nominated for any Oscars, I don't think, but uh, definitely worth watching. Yeah. Um, but-
0: a turning point. 1990 was kind of the turning point for where gangster movies started to go. But but Goodfellas to me is is just kind of that.
1: Yeah, it really um, modernized it, I think. Uh, Pesci obviously should have won and did win, but uh, a couple other things in the in the category Graham Greene, I thought really good in Dances with Wolves, but uh, Oscar worthy, probably not. I have some issues with that film winning as many Oscars as it did. And Al Pacino and Dick Tracy, I, I Boy, oh boy. This was the beginning where it's like,
0: don't encourage Al Pacino. This was this was where they started rewarding Al Pacino. And we're yeah. two steps away from full hua. Yeah. Al Pacino. And it's like, <laughs> why did you reward him for this one? You should have just ignored it. And then maybe he would have settled down again. But no. And the 90s was just a straight train towards full hua, And that's where that's where we ended up.
1: Yeah. You know, it, it, it has its uh, charm sometimes. And I have to
0: say that, uh,
1: so I watched Long Time Companion for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it's,
0: it's one of those things that I think just because of where I was the time that it came out, it, it never hit my radar. And I think a lot of people really think that Philadelphia is the first movie that really dealt with AIDS. Right. Because, because it's just in your consciousness It had two big actors in it. But Long Time Companion, Definitely predated that. I think it's a really worthwhile movie. And I, I yeah. think it is worth seeing because it's just a, a really uh, carefully laid out, simple story that just follows these particular men. And as they live with the crisis just exploding amongst them, I thought it was interesting that Bruce Davidson was nominated. Uh, and he's a classic that guy, mm-hmm. you know, that guy with the white hair that kind of shows up and everything. And you just know his face and you see him. Yeah. Yeah. But this is a true ensemble movie, and I don't particularly think that his performance stood out in any way of, instead of any, everybody else's, because his death in the movie actually happens off camera, and so he doesn't even have a death scene. There's not that much in the performance that I, would, that I think would be rewarded, so, so it's, it was an
1: interesting choice for me. And I think there are plenty of other people who could have, uh, could have been nominated. Yeah, I suggest one,
0: I, I have a thought.
1: Is it Jason Alexander for Pretty Woman? Is
0: actually not. That is an interesting choice. I thought about it, but it is from Pretty Woman. Oh. I think that Hector Elizondo deserves to be recognized because the part he played in Pretty Woman, he ends up playing in Runaway Bride. He ends up playing in The Princess Diaries. He's basically Gary Marshall's go-to fairy godfather. Like he plays that role of the super nice, really helpful. Uh, all-around great person that moves the main character ahead. That character does not get enough recognition, and he perfected it. He really did. And, and Pretty Woman is really where he brings it home. And they're like, I feel like he should have been recognized, at least with a nomination, for being so good at playing that part.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's, that was a good one. Um, although Jason Alexander was uh, so slimy, that it was pretty amazing. So let's go to Best Supporting Actress. Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost One, um, which I will say after re-watching Ghosts, uh, very well deserved. I thought she was fantastic. Um I'm really all about Ghost in this podcast because <laughs> it's which is something I never thought I'd say, but after rewatching it, uh, I love it. I love the
0: fact that you've come around a ghost. I agree with you completely. Uh, let me start off by saying though, I personally think the best supporting actress is the strongest category in the entirety of the Academy Awards for this year. Yeah. The Best Supporting Actress performances are off the charts good. And I think any one of these people, minus Diane Ladd, which we'll get to in a minute, could have deserved to win. And I think there are a couple of performances that are amazingly not even recognized. Uh, but I think that without Wimpy Goldberg, Ghost is a very, very different movie. Absolutely. And possibly not even a good one. So I, I don't, I feel like that's a performance you have to reward because she really makes the movie. Yeah. So you get no argument for me, but I mean, Annette Bening is truly fantastic in The Grifters. And what's interesting is, as I was, after watching The Grifters, I watched Postcards from the Edge, mm-hmm. where she has a small scene in that movie. And the part she plays in that movie is just really, really different, obviously, than the parts she plays in The Grifters. it makes you appreciate how good she is in The Grifters. Yeah. She's using a, like a played up voice in The Grifters. Mm-hmm. is the different. And when you see her in Postcards from the Edge, it makes you realize how truly great she was in The Grifters. I had never seen Postcards from the Edge before. So how you feel about Ghost is actually how I feel about Postcards from the Edge. I came away really enjoying that movie and kind of being amazed I hadn't seen it before. But it's mm-hmm. just really well done. I'm a sucker for movies about making movies. And so that yeah part of it as well. Uh, but Shirley MacLaine is, is fantastic in Postcard from the Edge. Yeah, I mean, kind of essentially playing Debbie Reynolds, but she's she's so good in it. And the fact that she wasn't recognized is shocking to me. I I, ju- I just think that uh, she totally deserved to be recognized because she's really wonderful in that movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, I could easily see her replacing Joanne Woodward. Uh, yeah, and
0: and to me, because to me, you know. Getting Diane Ladd getting the nomination, it's like, all right, I'm I'm gonna let everybody on a little secret here. Uh, I think I've been trying for 20 years to get on the David Lynch stream and I'm just officially getting off. Like, I just have to admit that he doesn't doesn't do it for me. I'm just, it's just not my style. And I feel like Diane Ladd's performance is uh, the the sister performance to Al Pacino's Dick Tracy performance. (laughs) You're just watching it and you're like, what the hell is going on here? Well, and uh, she has to upstage I, Nicolas Cage. Yeah, well, that's the point. It's one of those performances where you're like, is she supposed to be ridiculous? And if that's the part, then I guess she did a good job. But it's like, am I supposed to be laughing at her? Am I supposed to be taking her seriously? And I get that's what David Lynch goes for. But as far as the performance goes, I just do not get it. And I, uh, I'm thumbs down on that one. But, to, uh, to answer
1: your questions, yes, you are supposed to laugh at her. Yes, it is supposed to be taken seriously. And yes, it's also humorous. That sums up David Lynch. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think that's why I just, I, I can't with that. Uh, yeah. And one more thing in this category as well is after watching Mr. and Mrs. Bridge,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, Bly Danner plays a supporting role in Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. And she is excellent in that movie. Uh, I think that's an underrated performance. I mean, most people have probably never even seen Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, which is Mm -hmm. a really interesting kind of movie where nothing really happens and just goes along. (laughs) But but somehow it's still engaging as you you watch it. But Bly Danner is kind of the spark of that movie Mm
1: -hmm. because
0: everyone else just kind of stays the same uh, and she does it. She's trying to kind of fight against the conventions, I think, of the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and she's just really good in in a quiet way in that movie. And it's another performance that I think could have been recognized over Diane Ladd.
1: Yeah. I mean,
0: Diane Ladd, so you just swap in one uh, parent of another actor for for the other.
1: Right. (laughs) That would
0: have been my choice.
1: Yeah. uh, Well, I mean, Lynch was hot that year, you know. He he also had Twin Peaks. So it's uh, you want to recognize him, and I don't think they were ready to recognize him as a director, so just give it to the supporting actress. Yeah,
0: they had to find something, so I get it. But yeah, to me, there were two other performances that were better. But yeah, this this category, top to bottom, is just really, really strong.
1: Yeah, Lorraine Brocko, it's too. Uh, uh, Mary McDonald, not so much for me. I, I mean, I have a lot of problems with Dances with Wolves and uh, I don't know, I, I wasn't big on her character, but um, yeah, but really, Outside of her, I agree with you. I think it's what a strong category, and and that's awesome. I mean, I I love that, and and really, uh, you know, Best Actress is also really strong, um, really
0: strong. In both cases, you have two categories that are really strong. A lot of great performances uh, by by women that that yeah here. but in both cases, the winner is almost a no brainer. Yeah. So yeah. just right into the best actress, where it's kind of like I think any one of those other women would have won if they had been any other year, or Kathy Bates did not. Did not yeah.
1: Kathy Bates for misery. Um, rewatched this recently, and and it's just next level performance. She's so good, um, as she always is, really. But uh, this is really the first time I remember seeing her be. Kathy Bates. And... Well,
0: it's really one of her first movies. I mean, she yeah. I mean, she was 40, I think, when she made this movie. And right. she's been on the stage for quite a while. Uh, here's an interesting, fun fact that I just learned that I was reading about this. That um, the movie Frankie and Johnny, which starred uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Al Pacino, mm-hmm. that was based on a play called Frankie and Johnny at the Claire de Lune. Right. And that play was actually written for Kathy Bates. Like Ooh. that character was written for her. And she actually did it on stage and she won an award for it. Hmm. Uh, which I think also goes to show you a lot about the difference between movies and plays where that movie could have been written for Kathy Bates for the stage, yeah. but Michelle Pfeiffer ends up playing the role in the movies. Right. So, but but she was a very well-respected stage actress. and I think this was the first chance she really got to shine on screen and man, she really took it and ran with it.
1: She did. Uh... Just hands down. I mean, I mean, there are plenty of other amazing performances: Angelica Houston in The Grifters, Julia Roberts Pretty Woman, Meryl Streep in Postcards from the Edge, and Joanne Woodward in uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. Uh, all really strong, but uh, yeah, Kathy Bates just just so good. And uh, there's not even much to get into with it, I don't think. But uh, yeah. yeah, although I will say. For, for Meryl Streep, uh,
0: after I watched Postcards from the Edge, it, it almost made me angry how well she also sings because she does her own singing in the movie. <laughs> and you're like, she's Meryl Streep and she also has like the voice of an angel. I'm like, get out of here. Like, it's almost annoying how good she <laughs> is at everything. Yeah. I had no idea she could actually sing that well. So, so uh, that was something.
1: Yeah. You can't question the ability. Um, well, so uh, not much to say on Best Actress. It's, uh, we're both in agreement that Kathy Bates wins. So there's not Kathy much. Kathy Bates wins
0: 100 times out of 100. She just uh, yeah. does that. And it's the thing, when you have a movie where there's very few people and you're in a very small space, mm-hmm. uh, almost like a stage play, kind of. Yep. I mean, the main actors have to carry it. And James Combs was good, but I mean, yeah. she just completely owns owns the movie and she has to carry it, essentially, because his, his role is kind of reacting to her so yeah she she essentially has to carry the entire movie on her shoulders and and she really does a hell of a job
1: yeah that's that's the perfect role for james con i think he he seems to always just be reactionary and not uh i agree
0: and james con also had a cameo role in dick tracy by the way that's right so al pacino and and james con show up in a movie together again (laughs)
1: quite a different movie
0: very different
1: yeah um all right best actor we have jeremy irons winning for reversal of fortune uh pretty good nominees there but i don't know that i agree with all of them Uh, i was
0: very intrigued by the idea that uh gerard Depardieu was was nominated because I, i couldn't think of many foreign language performances that actually were nominated yeah. Best actor. So that was pretty
1: interesting. Yeah. It's uh, surprising. Um, you could have seen, for better or worse, James Kahn there. Right. right. For, I mean, for me, I, I, I mean, or Ray Liotta. I, mean,
0: I was going to say, you're going to catch
1: the theme for me. But yeah. I mean, Ray Liotta,
0: <laughs> I mean, he's the center of Goodfellas. And I mean, it's, it's one of the first major roles he ever had. And he just really carries that movie. Yeah. great in it I'm actually kind of surprised that he wasn't recognized
1: yeah I agree I I mean I could see even even in rewatching Awakenings I mean De Niro was fine but I don't know it was almost a little cartoonish I thought um, kind of in the middle but uh, I didn't see the field with Richard Harris so I don't know no I did see
0: the field and I, I think this was very interesting so the field is basically carried by Richard Harris. Mm-hmm. That's why he was nominated. The movie right. rests on his shoulders and he's really great. at it. But the thing about the field I thought was so interesting is it's a super Irish movie. It's placed in the Irish countryside and it's very much uh, you know, a tragic play. It's based on a play and it's tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that I thought was fascinating is that as you watch it, you can't help but think of the Banshees of Inisherin. Mm -hmm. which was nominated last year, written by Martin McDonough, directed by Martin McDonough, who is also a playwright. Right. I can't help but think that the field did not influence him. And the other thing I thought was really interesting is that Brendan Gleeson actually has a bit part in the field. Oh, really? I'm in the background there. And I cannot imagine that when he made Banshee's of Anna Sharon, he wasn't channeling Richard Harris (laughs) in a lot of ways. So... That's almost why I think he's even more deserving, where I know that Richard Harris seems to me to be the inspiration for, for Brendan Gleason. So it's it's a pretty interesting movie. Uh, but but just fits in with that whole Irish tragic play kind of feel. Uh but these two movies are almost sister movies in in, in that way. So, so yeah, guess,
1: sound like a good double feature. I'd really like to uh, put them back to back. Yeah, if you watch them back to back,
0: you definitely will see the similarities. And I I think that was pretty interesting for me.
1: Yeah, Um, so yeah. And just to speak to Jeremy Irons a little bit in Reversal of Fortune, boy, (laughs) what a performance. I just watched that this morning and I had planned on just kind of like skimming through it just to get some bits and pieces and watch some clips. But uh, his performance, was just so riveting and because it's dark and it's, I don't know if it's intentionally funny, it must be, but it's its pretty funny. <laughs> um, and for some reason I couldn't help thinking about Daniel Day-Lewis and Phantom Thread as I watched it. Uh, maybe it's like the, the accent and the highbrow kind of, although I will say uh, Jeremy Irons accent was, Something to behold. It 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 reminded me a little bit of James Franco's accent when he played Tommy Wiseau in The Disaster Artist. Like it was, uh, I I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but
0: uh, it kind of reminded me of what cartoon characters sound like when they're trying to be highbrow. Yeah, uh, but it works for the character as well. And and the reason I love the performance is that it you know the character and the way he plays it is. He's aware of all times and what everyone thinks of him, Mm -hmm. but never tries in any way to ingratiate himself to anyone at any moment. Right. So just, he he is himself for better or worse. Mm -hmm. That's the way the character plays and, and the way that he plays it. And I just think that's a really, really good choice and really well played. And he never breaks even for a second where you think he thinks twice about something he said or that he's done or anything. Uh, he never does. He just stays there being himself the whole time.
1: And even at the end, when he he walks in, he gets cigarettes and he's like on a vial of insulin. Like, oh, that's amazing. Oh, it's exactly. so good. <laughs> yeah, that's,
0: that's what it makes it. Yeah, he's just like, he's never going to be anyone other than who he is. And, and the character just really works.
1: Yeah, and I I would assume that the the biggest competition in that in that category would have been Kevin Costner, since uh, Dances with Wolves won everything. Um, so I was happy to see him not. I guess even
0: that wasn't bridge too far for the Academy.
1: <laughs> that that's true. Yeah. Oh. They were they oh, were going to try, but they, they just they just couldn't. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're at the best director. Which goes to Kevin Costner, of course, for Dances with Wolves. Boy, this is a tough category. I, I, it feels like almost everyone could have won beyond Kevin Costner. Uh, you have Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather Part Three. Well, maybe he couldn't have won. Um, Scorsese for Goodfellas, Stephen Frears for The Grifters, and Barbette Schroeder for Reversal of Fortune. I think we're going to agree on this one that it, it's not mm-hmm. Kevin Costner. I'm just going to open this by uh, giving you
0: a, a thought here.
1: Yeah.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I have this, that there have been six times where a first-time director won the Academy Award. And two of those times, they beat Martin Scorsese.
1: Yeah. It's not right. And uh, what was the other time? Was it for The Departed? No, he won for that. So... So it says,
0: six directors have won the Best Director Oscar for their film debut. I can give you the list. Mm -hmm. Uh, Delbert Mann for Marty, Jerome Robbins for West Side Story, James L. Brooks for Terms of Endearment, Sam Mendes for American Beauty, and then in 1980, Robert Redford won for Ordinary People, over Marty Scorsese for Raging Bull, Yeah, and then Kevin Costner beats him again for... Dancing with Wolves. So Scorsese not only lost twice to first-time directors, he lost twice to first-time directors who are actors. Yeah. And I just can't accept this. I, I, I find this to be completely, it almost feels personal. Yeah. Where it's like, are you are you really joking with me? I, I understand, look, I'm gonna say dance with Wolves is a really good movie. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to stomp on Dances with Wolves. But if you watch those two movies next to each other, are you honestly telling me that the direction in Dances with Wolves is better than the controlled chaos of Goodfellas? The performances of the people in Goodfellas who are basically uh, two steps from, from full meltdowns at all times to keep that high wire level that high throughout the whole movie. The camera work the choices of shots. It's like a masterclass in directing to me. That's what I think Goodfellas is. And, I agree. and Wolves. Look, that scene where they're hunting buffalo is a, is fantastic and really well done. And there's a, a lot of shots in Dancing with Wolves that, that, are, that are great. But when you get down to the core of it, it's like the direction of the actors. I, I, I just do not see it.
1: Yeah, I'm with you, and I think uh, even, you know, uh, Dances with Wolves won Best Cinematography, among many other things, and I think that's a place where uh, Michael Ballhaus for uh, Goodfellas should have taken the taken the Oscar, too. It's interesting you say
0: that, because to me, I feel like Cinematography is the one award that I could live with, with Dances with Wolves winning over Goodfellas, hmm. Uh, because it truly was beautiful to look at. Uh, and some of the shot compositions, some of the shots were, were really great. Although, mm-hmm. as I said, the, the camera work in, in Goodfellas is astounding. Yeah. Uh, when you go back and watch it again, you re- recognize how much the camera is moving at all times. Yeah. It's almost like the, the camera itself is uh, a character in the film because it's constantly moving around. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's just, it's truly great work. But to me, so you look at cinematography, to me, the fact that Dances with Wolves won the Oscar for editing is something that almost makes my brain break.
1: Yeah, that's another area for good
0: Just on a base level, Dances with Wolves is about 30 minutes too long. So, how do you give it a, 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 an Oscar for editing for a movie that feels too long? Yeah. Or as Goodfellas, the piece of Goodfellas is one of the many things that makes it amazing. And, and just a few things about it. The, the sequence at the end that takes place in 1980 before Henry goes into witness protection, that entire scene, that scene alone, that sequence deserves an Oscar for editing. Because the fact that she can, this is uh, Thelma Schoonmaker, who was the editor for Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. The fact that she can recreate what it feels like to be on cocaine and be paranoid in in the choice of cuts and how the cuts accelerate and where the point of view changes and all of those things where you actually start to feel out of breath yeah. as the actor does as he goes into a full-on pattern. That that, is, that sequence should be taught in, in every class about editing. Yeah. Because to me, it's, it's perfect. Uh, I do not see how you don't recognize that or yeah, I don't see, I, I don't recognize that with an award. I just think that she, it's, it's truly amazing work. And it, it really, really bugs me to this day that it, that it wasn't recognized. And, and and the use of Freeze Frame in Goodfellas, which can easily go wrong. Yeah. I mean, Freeze Frame is kind of feels hokey like a television movie or something. But mm-hmm. Her use of Freeze Frame is, is perfectly placed. She doesn't overdo it. She does it more in the beginning than towards the end. But when it's used... It's used very effectively, which helps to highlight the dialogue of the movie. It, yeah, it, it's just, it's really, really good work. Uh, I will say again, and I can't for the life of me, understand how you would think that Dance of the Wolves is a better edited movie than Goodfellas. I mean, you have Thelma Schoonmaker at the height of her powers, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, between the cinematography and editing, it's... Uh, it's... And this is exactly why we do this podcast, right? Because <laughs> there are injustices and we're here to correct them. And I think this is certainly one uh, or two that, that really, you know, have have just been overlooked and uh, unfortunately not given their due. And And I think we just did, or you just did. With that
0: being said, then obviously we can talk about best picture and pretty sure you know where I'm going to fall on this.
1: I'm going to guess Goodfellas. <laughs> well, so
0: I got a, a couple of things that I feel like when I when I think about this. As I said, I think it was a binary year. I think that essentially you're looking at two choices. But I think in a lot of ways, I mentioned that I think how Goodfellas essentially. So what Dance What Wolves gets credit for is they say that it, it re, in, reinvigorated the Western, which right. I don't think is an incorrect thing to say. I mean, Silverado came out a few years before that which was a pretty good Western, but the 80s on the whole were not a good year for Westerns. And Dancing with Wolves did have a lot to do with kind of bringing that genre back. And and I give him credit for it. I, I'm aware that it was a passion project for him. It took him five years to get it made. Uh, so I, I see all of that. But with that being said, I think that you can look at Goodfellas and say that Goodfellas basically reinvented the gangster movie. Yeah. So I think both of those things are fair, but the key thing to me is that what I think when you look at these two movies, you clearly see two things. One, what the Academy loves to reward and what it doesn't. Right. it loves to reward is feel good movies, even though Dance with Wolves skirts the line, but they like hero movies and they like Oscar bait, lush, epic movies. That's something that that the Academy has always loved. Whereas Goodfellas does not fall in that category. I think that they have a hard time rewarding movies about nothing but bad guys. I think that's a hard thing for the Academy to get its head around. I think that's what ends up hurting Goodfellas. But to me, when you really look at it, knowing that it took five years for Costner to get Dances with Wolves made, I think that what you're really seeing is a clear line in cinema. That Dance With Wolves to me is an 80s movie. I think that what you're looking at is 80s Oscar bait. When you look back at the movies that won Oscars in the 80s, you look at your "Chariots of Fire, and you look at your Out of Africa, you look at all all those movies that kind of won. And this fits in the mold of that. Mm -hmm. Where to me, Goodfellas is the first true movie of the 90s. Goodfellas, to me, is the introduction of 90s filmmaking. And I think that because of it, you get everything that comes after. You get I don't think you get Tarantino movies the way that you got them without Goodfellas. I don't think that you get that type of cinema about bad guys that truly flourishes in independent cinema in the 90s. I don't think you see any of that without Goodfellas kind of throwing the flag down and saying we're no longer in the 80s, we're in a new decade of movie, and this is where we're going.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think too that you, I think Goodfellas kind of set the tone for filmmaking style too. I mean, you know, the long shot that everybody thinks about, you know, there, there have been long shots forever, but Uh, in the 90s you know you see Paul Thomas Anderson using that you see even in swingers they recreate that scene and then there's the music like the needle drops over it I just think even beyond the bad guy getting getting his due in a film you get a new filmmaking style for all of these young filmmakers who that's what I agree so I'm
0: saying he he sets the template for what a 90s movie is going to look like in, in in a lot of ways and I don't think he even gets the credit he deserves for that in a way, for, for clearly marking decades. Uh, yeah. and, and it's a clear delineation, like it's a, it's a clear marker. And I think that the Academy at the time was still stuck in what they believed was an Oscar movie in the 80s and not recognizing that, uh, that things were about to change. And as usual, Scorsese is just a little too far ahead and never really gets the credit that he deserves.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think even though filmmaking was advancing, the Academy is still the same people who loved Westerns in in the 60s, you know, so they're the ones voting on it. And uh, of course, they're going to put Dances with Wolves at the top of the list. I think yeah. it's just Goodfellas is such a dynamic and and fresh film that I don't think anybody knew what to do with it. Like yeah, and like, I think
0: that the fact that up to that point had more F-words than
1: any other movie
0: uh, in history <laughs> up to that point probably didn't help. But but again, it's kind of like, it's not just about movies that make you feel good. It's about movies that that literally change cinema. And as you're, as you're watching it, you realize that you're seeing something that's totally different. Uh, and you see it play out over the next decades of, yeah. of what, what he w- was able to do. Uh, I, I just think it's it's... I, I, don't, I hesitate to say that anything is a perfect movie. Uh, I think Goodfellas is pretty damn close, but I don't think yeah. anything is perfection. But the other thing that I always think is it, does it pass the, I'm going to date myself here, but I call it the cable test, mm-hmm. where if you're sitting <laughs> on your couch and you're flicking through channels and you stumble onto this movie, will you watch it no matter how many times you have seen it? Yeah. And I have a few movies that fit that category. Uh, some of them are terrible just because I love them personally, but yeah. others are just so good that I have to watch at least 20, 30 minutes of it. Right. And Goodfellas always, always, always falls into that category. I yeah. can't remember ever coming across Dancing with Wolves and thinking, you know what? I'm going <laughs> to sit with this one for a little while and uh, and watch this play out. It, it just doesn't hit the same way. And as and yeah. as the years go on, Goodfellas only proves itself to be
1: stronger. I agree. It, yeah. I, I really dragged my feet revisiting Dances with Wolves and uh, I did like it more than I thought, but it was still not something that I would go back and watch again.
0: Yeah, but, I, I agree
1: with you. I, I felt kind of the same way, like as I told you, I think that
0: part of this whole thing for me, this re-Oscar thing started in 91. Mm-hmm. And I've been angry at at <laughs> Scorsese and Winfels getting shafted for most of my life. Uh, yeah. but I put all of that aside because I really don't want to be biased and I went back and watched Dancing with the Wolves with fresh eyes also recognizing that seeing it on a big screen would have made it much better Oh yeah, uh, watch, even though our TVs are bigger now I mean watching it on a TV at home is not the same thing it, it's truly a beautiful movie to look at uh, and, and there's really good scenes in it but I went into it with fresh eyes and I really wanted to look at it uh, and I watched yeah. it first and I really enjoyed it and I thought it was a good movie but I still thought it dragged Uh, I mentioned the narration before, and I think that's a good example where even the narration... I I kind of accept that Kevin Costner's narrator is supposed to be... I assume that because he's of that time, he's supposed to be a little more stunted in the way that he speaks. I think he's trying to create more of what those people would have sounded like at the time. Uh, But compare that to, to Ray Liotta's narration, which is just crackling with energy. And even that is just infinitely better uh yeah the only funny thing when i was watching dance with wolves though as i was watching it i thought uh you know this seems like the kind of movie that, that will be banned in florida now yeah
1: it since, really
0: uh, is the soldiers that really play the bad guys but i guess yeah. because it's it's union soldiers instead of confederate soldiers, that might make it okay
1: right yeah well as i was watching it i kept thinking this would be Really lovely on IMAX if it were shot in IMAX because it's just so sweeping and and the cinematographer Dean Semler uh, kind of did some westerns you know back in the in the day and right around this time actually he did Young Guns he did City Slickers um, so it was kind of his his area of expertise and I just think any western like if you have the open open plains as the backdrop it's going to look gorgeous. And it really, even you know, even being what it was, I thought it was beautiful to look at. And and
0: uh yeah, I think it, in some ways, the beauty of it almost distracts you from the fact that the core of it is pretty simple, and you know, not anything truly spectacular. Right. Uh, well, while well, it's a good movie, again, as I said, I would never say that's was well, a bad movie. Like I mean, that's silly. I don't, I don't believe in that kind of stuff. Not, not everything is. Is all of one and nothing of the other. Danceable is a perfectly fine movie. It's yeah. a good movie. Uh, I, I don't have the issue with it being nominated. I just, In that year, it in every way, it just seems obvious that Goodfellas is, is a superior movie and also a sea change of movies in general that we'll see down the road. And yeah. people just can recognize it at the time.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think a lot of the things that we talk about post 1990 will. Revisit Goodfellas quite a bit because uh, just the thumbprint is is uh, just so deep. So, I believe uh, so. I, and
0: I have to say that I think when you think of Westerns as well, even now, when you think of uh, the Western revival, I think a lot more people nowadays honestly think of Unforgiven before they think of Dances with Wolves. Yeah. It's interesting to me as well. So I know that, that Costner kind of reopen that door but in some ways, unforgiven ends up being the marker of what the new kind of Western would
1: be. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we've covered all of the categories. Um let's let's finish out by getting into some of our guilty pleasures for the year because I have some interesting ones.
0: <laughs> I got I've got a couple. Well, I'll yeah. let you go first cuz I cuz I was very long-winded talking about Goodfellas so I'm going <laughs> to see
1: well, it It's possible that I'm going to be as long-winded about Kiefer Sutherland who uh is my guilty pleasure of 1990 he made free movies, movies in actually. general just, that's that's great he was really you know late 80s starting with Stand by Me in 86 but uh kind of the Lost Boys in 87 really got him going. But in 1990, he did four films. So he did Flashback with Dennis Hopper, which is uh, just incredible. (laughs) And Chicago Joe and the Showgirl, which that one I have to say I I have not seen, Um, but it doesn't matter because the other two are things that I had on repeat nonstop. Uh, in 1990, and those were Young Guns 2 and Flatliners, which are both, in my opinion, super solid films. Uh, I love the kind of cowboy brat pack of the Young Guns and the Bon Jovi score. I was going to say,
0: we're talking about movie Guilty Pleasure, but my (laughs) soundtrack Guilty Pleasure is absolutely the Young Guns 2 soundtrack, which I have known for most of my life and still listen to it to this day. Uh, I really enjoyed it.
1: It was literally the first CD I ever owned. And I, and I feel good about that. Um, but yeah, Young Guns 2, Kiefer Sutherland, fantastic. And uh, Flatliners, you know, Julia Roberts had a year as well, Pretty Woman and, and Flatliners. And and uh, she was a big part of why I liked that film too. But uh, yeah, as I was looking through these, I was thinking, Boy, Kiefer Sutherland in the late 80s. He was my man, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, he was in Lost Boys in 87, which is just everything good about Kiefer Sutherland. (laughs) And And actually, so Lost Boys was directed by Joel Schumacher, and he also directed Flatliners, if I'm not mistaken. I think so, yeah. So you should credit Joel Schumacher for truly recognizing the, the genius of Kiefer Sutherland. I mean, clearly he
1: got it. Yeah, yeah, and thank goodness. He, he made the uh, late 80s and 1990 uh, good years for me. But there there were a ton of films that year that uh, could kind of fall under guilty pleasures. Um, but really that, you know, those Kiefer Sutherland films um, and maybe Look Who's Talking To, but I'll leave it there. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> with my, I, with I would that love that we, you uh, go on about Look Who's Talking To. That, that, I'd be here for that. So if you want to come back to it, I'm happy to hear it.
1: <laughs> we'll save that for a special episode.
0: For me, in retrospect, now, now that I have children, I don't ever remember seeing Home Alone when it came out. But it's now uh, one of the only holiday movies that we watch every year. My kids mm-hmm. love it, and I've learned to appreciate it. So I have to mention that one. I guess it's not a guilty pleasure, though, because it was hugely popular. Yeah. Another uh, thing about movies that came out at the time, though, uh, Home for Red October also came out. hmm and I just have to make sure that I mention this continues the streak of Sean Connery playing ethnicities of every sort, but never once changing his accent. Never. <laughs> you, won't, you won't do it. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to have a problem with it, which is fine. Yeah. Why not? Because Sean Connery. Yeah, exactly. He just plays Sean Connery, and everybody's, everybody's there for it. It's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> uh, so for me, I have two. Two guilty pleasures, which are truly guilty pleasures. I don't think a lot of people have even watch these movies. Uh, I could be wrong, but the first one, uh, piggybacking on yours, I'm going Emilio Estevez route, oh, wow. where he made Men at Work with Charlie Sheen.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, he directed movie Men at Work. He made it with his brother Charlie Sheen. I think it's one of the few times they're actually in a movie together, and it's just kind of a screwball comedy about garbage men. Yep get involved in some shenanigans Uh, but Keith David his performance in Men at Work is really great Uh, I always loved it and I just think that that movie is kind of underrated as far as comedies go I've always enjoyed it and and I I rewatched it a little while ago and it it still holds up pretty well and I I just think it's uh, a fun movie that's worth checking out you got a little time to kill you know it's not going to change your life but I've always liked it
1: I agree. The other and one has Dean Cameron in it.
0: That's right. That's right. In summer School. <laughs> so the other one also comes back to people making multiple movies in the same year. So Jim Belushi, who really it's amazing that he's mentioned in an Oscars podcast, but here we go. Jim Belushi made two movies in 1990. He made Taking Care of Business, which had Charles Gruden in it. Mm-hmm. Not a very good movie. But he also made a movie called Mr. Destiny. Now, Mr. Destiny is just one of those simple kind of heartwarming movies that I'm kind of a sucker for. And I've always really liked it. Um, And the cast is really good. So Michael Caine basically plays like an angel, so to speak. The movie is essentially about a person whose life doesn't end up the way they wanted it to. And he believes that if he had done this one thing, which is getting a hit in the big game when he was a kid, that his life would have been completely different. Yeah, it's a baseball movie. Yeah, so it's a, it's a peripheral baseball movie. So Michael Caine basically plays like this angel, so to speak, who comes down and shows him what would, what would have happened. He plays out the alternate life that he might have had if he had gotten that hit. And he gets to see the life that, that he might have lived. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I have to tell you how this all ends up.
1: Uh, I won't spoil okay. it for you, but you know how these movies so i it. Uh,
0: but yeah i mean linda hamilton is in it and she's really nice in it oh man i'm, I'm drawing a blank on, on the guy from snl who, who's who's also in it who plays his best friend uh which is oh, love executive. it yeah john yeah, yeah. he's in yeah, it yeah. and and he's pretty effective in that role actually mm. uh, so i just think it's kind of a nice heartwarming little movie uh probably the best thing jim belushi ever did <laughs> and i may not be saying much, but uh Yeah, it, it's definitely my number one guilty pleasure of 1990. I fa- I've actually probably watched that movie, watched that movie a lot more than I've watched Dances with Wolves. That's for sure.
1: <laughs> wow, I, I think uh, yeah, Jim Belushi is a good place to end it. <laughs> I don't know how you follow that. I think a lot
0: of things end with Jim Belushi, so I think that's
1: there. <laughs> yeah, possibly the only time we'll ever discuss Jim Belushi on this podcast. It's and that's okay. Um, so yeah, uh, 1991, pretty good year overall. Goodfellas, robbed in every sense of the word, and uh, Kevin Costner and Dances with Wolves overhyped. Yep, good for him.
0: But yes, Goodfellas way out of its time. But I believe I hear the music playing us out. Yeah, get out of here.
1: All uh, right. Those are our thoughts. Go back and watch Mr. Destiny. And on that note, thank you, Mike. And uh, we will see you next time. So long.